I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. This is Kristin O'Keefe-Aptowitz, and I'll be reading my poem, The First Checkup After My Mother Died, from my book, How to Love the Empty Air. The doctor notices me fidgeting with my ears, like a toddler, and asks if he could look at them. Yes, I tell him. They had been bothering me, and I didn't know why. After the examination, he asks if I've been through something Traumatic recently, a breakup or a loss of a job. Yes, I tell him, not wanting to explain. How did you know? Well, he tells me, this type of infection is common among people who have gotten in the pattern of holding back tears. You don't allow those tears to drain the way they're supposed to. They stay inside, cause a lot of pain. Do you think this is what's happening to you? He asks. Yes, I nod and hold back my tears. That's just such a beautiful poem. And the book too is centered around the death of your mother. Yes. And so first of all, I just have to ask, is that, I hate this question because I too am a poet and people ask me this all the time, but is that true about <laughs> the holding the right tears? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. That that is true. That um, is true. Yeah. I had to stop performing this poem while yeah. I was on the Midwest leg of my poetry tour because I got double ear infections. And because my, <gasps> my touring partner was like, you do know that you are touring with a poem about getting ear infections by holding back tears and you're reading about it and holding back your tears and now you have ear infections like everyone's very concerned I was like I should just cut out the middleman and not yeah. perform this will the poem circle anymore. be unbroken here yes. oh man yeah you know you know my work this is my seventh collection of poetry one of the things that has always attracted me um in writing is uh taking small moments and sort of teasing them out for their larger purpose. And those moments happen so much in life and people kind of skip over them. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of the joys I have as a writer is finding those moments that are so ironic or heartbreaking that you tend to just sort of skip over and Mm -hmm. kind of shine a spotlight. And in that moment, you know, when I went to the doctor, I was like, this is not something I really want to share. I just want to get my checkup and like, get out of here. And, um, and so in holding back that information, and him saying, or have you been holding back tears? You just had to like not have a breakdown. And it just, writing poetry at that time period was like the last thing I wanted to do. Because throughout my career as a poet, I just used poetry to to sort of pin to the page the things I wanted to remember. And I wanted to remember none of these experiences. Mm-hmm. But it was po- incidents like that that would just rattle through my head. And I couldn't get to sleep or do anything else until I just put it to the page and could stare at it and know it was real. And then sort of walk away and continue living. (laughs) Right. That experience of processing an event in life at the same time that you're creating, it's like, like, you know, processing something so that it can sort of move past you or you can move through it. But at the same time, you're kind of constructing this piece of art 
Right. You're building something as the, at the same time that something is being deconstructed. Yeah. Know, this the reality of your reality. The reality of, of yeah, yeah. Having that person with you. Yeah. Um, and I I think that is a remarkable quality. I don't know that there. I don't know that you know many people can so easily do that. And it does seem like it's the I you know the true. It's like your writer sense, right? <laughs> It's like people have different coping mechanisms and you're like trying to resist your ultimate coping mechanism, right? Like, no, I'm not going to write about this. I'm not right. going to write about this. And to and... me, you know, so much of um, my poetry for me is like a puzzle, especially as I grew older. I always say my younger poetry was not just like, this is a love poem, but like, this is a po poem I'm writing specifically so that you, Jason, will fall in love with me, yeah. you know? Like they were all very directive and like had, you know, an object to them. And then... Um, and then as I grew older, you know, poetry became this way of being like, why am I fixated on this? Let me work this poem through and see what it can show me about myself. And so for this time period, it was like, I knew all the answers. Like my mom was dead and I was sad. Like there's no figuring it out. So like why spend any energy capturing this when all I wanted to do was like get through it and forget it. Um, but it was writing about grief that brought me the most comfort and um uncon you know reading writing about grief and then sort of this unconscious writing where i would just do it so that i could stop obsessing about it that was sort of the birth of this book yeah and it yeah it feels very the book as a reader the experience of the book is very complicated and part of what i really enjoyed about it was the speaker resisting the complication of it and then inevitably being able being not able to resist it and entering into it right like there are, are some poems that right. sort of um say just that like what is the use right what is the use of this right and as the reader you're, you know, you're, it's almost like a reading, a, you know, you're like, oh, please don't stop now. You know, you're like, let's just keep going because we're with you in the, in the process, you know, and there's this sort of like sleight of hand that the speaker seems to be doing with herself throughout the book. Like, I'm not going to write about this or what is the use of writing about this? This isn't going to yield anything, for example, like my mother. Right. Yeah. Being not dead. And my, yeah, and my mother and I were very close and in and I talk a lot about her being sort of a narrator of my life, which is right. definitely something mm -hmm. that I carry in to my parenting style where she would always I would go through something and then she would retell me what I just went through. And make myself the hero of the story. So even if I had been teased or didn't do well or something, she always reframed it so that it was like I was heroic and brave and, you know, spunky. And that happened throughout my entire life. And so to have that missing, it was like, well, who am I writing this book for? Like, who's going to tell me the worth of this book if this narrator is now gone? Um, and so the book is a, a, a struggle with that. Um, and in touring behind it, I was I didn't realize the vulnerability of that, um, putting the book out and sharing it with people. And uh, famously, uh, I toured I toured with people, uh, with uh, uh, press mates. And Derek Brown also, he's the publisher of this book, also had a book coming out. And our first event, I was so nervous because I had not 
read any of these poems out loud and I tried rehearsing them at home and just ended up like on the floor sobbing with my dachshunds like whoa and I was like this has got to be like a marathon where you just like train 22 miles and like hope on the day of the race it carries you through 26.2 right and um lord knows I've never run a marathon uh but uh I've read about it uh <laughs> But, uh, and, the, and he was like, well, what are you worried about? I was like, I'm worried that I'm going to get on stage and sort of lose control and start crying. We're going to be at a bookstore. They're not going to have tissues. Some well-meaning employee is just going to like launch a roll of toilet paper at me and be like, we got you. And like all the social media photos are going to be like me with my book holding a roll of toilet paper and sobbing. And he was like, he's like, I'm going to go get some tissues right now. Problem solved. Sit in the front row. We will be there for you. That's And so then wonderful. the reaction to people has has been really heartening um, people really connected with the work and their own experiences in grief and I had taken such comfort in books written about grief which will be one of the poems I read read, read later but Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking mm. Kevin Young's Dear Darkness mm-hmm. um, uh, Hope Edelman's uh, Motherless Daughters and books books give you so much they give you everything that they have in them and ask for nothing back you know you can shut them at any time open them at any time um, and it was really cathartic to then um, be that for other people, to have this book, put it in the hands of people. And people bought multiple copies for themselves and for other people who had lost people in their lives. And it, and it, 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 it gave my writing purpose in the absence of my mother's narration. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, really grateful for that. It's yeah. been a really wonderful experience where, that I wasn't expecting. And you don't know. I mean, you don't know when you put something out into the world right. how it will be received. You can just, you send it out with a hope and a prayer, you know. I'm yeah. sure that this book has really touched a lot of people, you know. Um, I feel like you've said a couple of times, um, you've talked about touring. Yes. I think many people would find the idea of a poet touring to be like, very foreign and I was wondering you know I've I've been thinking about this knowing that you were going to come into the studio and that we were going to be able to talk just I was I've been thinking so much about one of the biggest changes that I've seen and experienced since say my entry into graduate school at the Michener Center mm-hmm. in 2000 um you know is just like the 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 kind of coming together wonderful coming together i feel like there used to be performance poetry and then there used to be academic poetry mm-hmm. and those two were very the the gap was the ca- there was a chasm yes. between them and i you know aside from what do you think it is that has brought these two I mean, I don't ever, I didn't actually ever perceive the chasm, right. but I was always observing it and feeling like, what is, wh- why, why this difference? And then by the time I was back, in my, I taught a class at UT in the English department and had Michener Fellows in the class and Sam, Sam Sachs, Sachs was yes. in that class. And I just was so heartened by like, you know, when I was in graduate school, there it was academic poetry. There was like this one kind of poetry. Right. And then if you wanted to perform your poetry, it was like, oh, that was in some way. Right. Um, like overcompensating for a weakness in the or, or just, yes, clownish. Or yes. It was a different not, thing. Yes, absolutely. And so I was just like, wow, that changed. That was not a very long time period. And it's. So tell me what you yeah. think happened no, in I, there. 
I, you know, I began uh, performing my poetry professionally uh, when I was in my 20s, early 20s. So I started uh, running a poetry slam in New York City out of the basement of CBGB's at the age of 19. And um, and back then we were we were, you know, that was the whole theory of poetry slam was like we are taking it directly to the people we don't care about academia we don't need your publishing credits like we are creating vital work telling the stories of our people in our own voices and communicating directly to um our communities and uh that was you know uh, one of the reasons i i still find that work electrifying it's mm-hmm. so regional you know what is going to win at a poetry slam um at the new Rican poets cafe may not be the same thing that wins in omaha and the same but each of those people represent something for their community and are so good at communicating that 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 they that they win so um and I was very, I wanted publication. So I wanted book publication. I wanted the awards. And I was always banging on grants and residencies. And there was a big gap. And I think a part of it was that students and young people really connected with the work we were creating. We were going to the college campuses, but we were not being brought in by the English departments. We were being brought in by the student unions. Right. Um, or the LGBTQ unions, or the African-American student councils um, who would bring in our poets. And <clears throat> we got paid a lot better yeah. <laughs> than the English departments paid anyway. And, you know, very early on, I would tell people, you know, when you come onto these campuses and you're being brought in by students, reach out to the English departments, reach out to look at their list of professors and find the ones doing modern poetry or African-American lit and just say, hey, I'm going to be in this, going to be coming to your campus. Uh, If your students want to come for extra credit, I'd be happy to talk to them or, you know, make them aware that we're here because frequently they're unaware. And I think that as as poets began to infiltrate MFA programs, mm-hmm. um, uh, poets, performance poets, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the professors became aware of the work we were doing and how much it was connecting to their students. It became sort of a part of the curriculum, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then as everyone aged up, the, the, they sort of merged and there is incredible success stories. When I was at AWP this year, I was like, like a, like a proud granny. Like I kept coming up to people like Franny Choi and Dinez Smith, who hosts the Poetry Foundation podcast mm-hmm. and have, you know, Dinez was a National Book Award finalist and a Ruth mm-hmm. Lilly fellow. Oh my gosh, I applied to Ruth Lilly so many times. And he had his start in, in slam poetry? Yes. Yeah, both of them did. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Sam Sachs and Hugh, uh, mm-hmm. Hugh Wynn, who's, you know, got a book coming out in Coffeehouse Press or just came out and is getting, he was in Entertainment Weekly yeah. as a yeah. book to read. And these were all people who started out as like young slammers hosting college slams, like doing it in college, mm-hmm. graduating to adult, and now having this tremendous success. And I was just saying how proud I was because to have people uh, like them to look up to when I was a young person would have been transformative to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of my experience coming up as a writer was like, forcing myself into places that I didn't think should have let, you know, would let me in. Um, that was, you know, and like speaking of Ruth Lilly, which is a fellowship that the Poetry Foundation put out um, before is like you had to be in a college program in order to even mm. submit. You couldn't just be mm. a working person who was 23. And no matter how many publishing credits you had or accolades you had, you couldn't even apply. And like those those boundaries to just access what what 
academia was giving out just seemed impossible to overcome. And now we have this whole generation of incredible writers doing vital work and not shying away. I mean, Sam Sachs is a great example, you know, of someone who, you know, he's he published a poem in the National Review about being choked by a belt during sex. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like he is unafraid to express, you know, who he is in this very vital moment in America mm-hmm. and uh, and get it into places that that for when I was his age felt impossible. So I'm so proud of this generation. Mm-hmm. I'm also proud of academia for like embracing what was, you know, the jewels that already existed. And and I'm really excited to see where poetry goes in general. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you see, the, see it this way, but just you going through that, the time chronologically, it's also like you then are the poets you they you may not have had those poets to look up to but this generation that's like that's your legacy if you you know you're the first wave of these poets and now I really do I was just so heartened it's in like you know it's like it's like fluoride now it's in the water of of I think poetry and in even in academia when I started um school I I just felt so out of place you know there were people who had put their PhDs at Harvard on hold to come and get their MFA at the Michener Center. And um, I came from a small town, New Mexico. And, you know, I remember writing, uh, thinking again about it this morning, I remember writing, it was like three weeks into school, and writing um, Naomi Shehebnai, who was my teacher, um, and just saying, she was leading the workshop, and I think I was probably like considering just going home. But what I said to her was, I don't know the language that the people are using to talk about poetry. Yeah. It is so foreign to me. Yes. You know, like I can jamment and <laughs> or, no, it was more just sort of like the, you know, con, you know, the who is writing and who's, you know, um, you know who 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 are your predecessors and what you know right. name dropping poets Canon, and yeah. very very academic view I felt because my experience with poetry was just like I, I it was so visceral I was like oh yeah poetry saved my life right. and now you are talking about it in this way that makes right. it sound like really boring and I can't access it and um, wrote to her and said like I don't know how to access this language and she wrote back this amazing email that I still you know keep to this day that was said you know um, she said I you know I can finally say that I fully absolutely understand exactly how you feel I I understand that and she said that Philip Lopate the poet had you know talked to her about it in the same way and said like there are so many ways of entering into poetry and you have to honor your own way of entering into Mm -hmm. it and you can't you know and I think I spent so much time you know having internalized to me what's just like it's like very easily just the patriarchy right these are the canon this is the poet these are the poets who we hold up and these are the poets who we dismiss right um I mean the way these are the paths you take Right. Yeah. And so I think that was just so freeing to me. I was really lucky to have that moment because um, and then you just sort of start freeing yourself, you know, more and more. Yeah. Of like, oh, I don't have to think like that. I don't have to see that poet as 
Like I could just see that poet as I experience them. I don't have to see it the way that whoever is, you know, the what you know professor, if you will, you know, is is seeing that poet. You know, yeah. I think that, and that I think that that's just it. It's really astonishing to me that that's changed so much in such a short time, and it's. I mean, it's heartening in the sense that it really is like examining the the people we read and wondering, you know, saying, wait, why are the performance poets outside of academia? And we're all, and we're inside. The, right. What is the difference? Hmm. Let's and see. I don't, I don't want to blow it up, but oral poetry was the first poetry. I know, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, that is something that's really um, heartening to me. And yeah. it's, um, I think, something that uh, I didn't see hap- changing. And it's so wonder. you know, it's just also fun to be part of the change, not be, you know, I think there are still poets out there who are clinging by their fingernails to this idea of who gets to do it. Right. Yeah, no, I, you know? that was my, you know, I grew up in working class Philly. My dad uh, worked at the wastewater treatment department. So when I was a kid, I used to say, when you flush your toilet, it goes to my dad. And my mother was like, never describe your life like that. <laughs> like, But, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood of like firefighters and cops and city workers. And the idea of being a writer was just, it might as well have told them I wanted to be the tooth fairy. They had no idea how that was ever going to be possible. And every working class family has the same wish for their child, which is to get an education and leave the neighborhood. And so their fear for me was that I would become an artist and go back to poverty that they had just escaped. And um, and uh, so many times I tried to look for role models that had lives that were similar to me, but became successful writers. A lot of them from the, you know, like the 20s and 40s became right. drunks and like died destitute. So that wasn't great. But then there were poets like um, uh, Jim Daniels, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon right mm-hmm. now, who paid his way through college by working in auto factories mm. and he wrote about working in factories and it spoke to me so profoundly it's really set the stage for what i think is my writing career and then you have a poet like bob hickok mm-hmm. who is incredible has gotten guggenheims and nea fellowships he does not have an mfa um he uh, worked in an auto dye factory right. creating auto dyes up until he was hired to become a poetry professor and his work is incredible mm-hmm. and and again like has a visceral connection to sort of regular working life mm-hmm. um and so I, th- I think it's so important you know to to visibly see people who have non-traditional backgrounds succeed so that people who are wondering if they can do it can see a Danette Smith, can see a Franny Choi, can see a Sam Sachs and go, even though I feel like this total outlier weirdo who no one's going to want to care about, you know, I see a little bit of myself in this person and they're making it and people are publishing them and giving them awards and their books are so vulnerable and raw and um, and they're able to to get that work out there and have people respond to it. So maybe me too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really proud of, of this generation um, for for leading the way and and showing all of these voices that were traditionally underrepresented. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not just a matter of academic versus performance, but oh, also, right. you know, uh, LGBTQI, um, HIV positive, mm-hmm. um, you know, people of color, uh, people. Uh, you know, immigrants, like, uh, uh, you know, trans people, like, there's so many poets who are now being given a platform mm-hmm. um, that otherwise you had to search them out <laughs> through their self-published works or 
through uh, performance poetry channels. You know, we had a lot of people come through that were outside of the mainstream um, whose work we adored and who got giant audiences, but could never punch through to mainstream. And to see that happen just gives me so much hope about this new generation Mm -hmm. that's reading these works and saying, I wonder if I could be a poet, like what they're going to have the freedom to create. Right. Yeah. For me, I think when I was, you know, reading poems in college and beyond and wondering if I could follow that path. It was like the poets, like for me, it was like Sharon Olds, Mm. Dorian Locks. Yeah, yeah. They seemed to be doing, and I mean, now, you know, they're, they're, you know, I don't think, I mean, well, I think that people still have strong opinions about them or whatever, but I remember like early on, like when the early internet, like looking up Sharon Olds and people just, the vitriol that that reviewers right. slung at her, uh, you know, talking about her body parts. And these are, you can't do this in a poem, you know, basically saying, who the hell do you think you are? Yes. And, um, you know, so it's, yeah, that's a, just having those voices pull you along, encourage, you know. And so now there there are so many voices there's so many voices being published and being taken seriously on their own grounds you right. know yeah and, and and i mean maybe maybe sharon olds isn't doing what you think a poem does maybe it's not what she's doing it's that it doesn't align with what you think a poem should be doing and so you know right. it's like that maybe it's not for you well and one of the you gifts know? of being a woman and an artist is the history of women in the arts mm. where um uh you know no one gets to tell people who uh history remembers mm-hmm. you know you have emily dickinson you know obviously well-known poet now like you know died mm-hmm. left all of her poems in a trunk you mm-hmm. know and now she is this major you know figure in american poetry you have uh frida Kahlo, who in her lifetime was known as sort of like the uppity wife of the important mexican mm-hmm. muralist diego rivera and all her like self-portraits were seen as like oof, like obscenely narcissistic right and then you fast forward and she is this symbol mm-hmm. of feminine independence and assertion of will and you know, um, you know, she would never she she never m- maybe imagined that in her lifetime. So, I mean, to me, it's, it, you know, watching, reading these histories and seeing the evolution of these women's art, it just reinforces to me that you just need to create the stuff that feels authentic um, and important to you that you feel like which Sharon Olds clearly does mm-hmm. um, and and history will take it from there yeah. you know like we you know if you're not recognized in your lifetime don't sweat it mm-hmm. <laughs> like history goes on and if if your work is vital and you're you're being true to yourself and creating work with that sort of authenticity you know it can be rewarded if you're trying to play into a system you know you end up diluting yourself and you may not be as remembered so um you know being sort of coming from a poetry slam background and wondering like publishing all these books wondering like will anyone remember is hard but knowing that generations of women haven't had the opportunity i've had to share my work and that generations of women artists were never recognized or given a spotlight during their lifetime but their work is still remembered and especially by other by future women Mm -hmm. has just helped me stay the course yeah and you're helping that oh that overarching paradigm shift that I do believe and have faith in that is happening in publishing in general. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, it's also led by readers. You know, yeah. I think that right. one of the things that's most surprising to me, um, which I it shouldn't be because I came into poetry when I was a teenager and fell in love with these poets and had my entire brain shaped by uh, the works of the poets that I was exposed to at that age. But poetry is huge among young people right now. It is mm-hmm. a major form of expression. Um, they they follow things like Button Poetry, which is this enormous YouTube channel that puts out new spoken word uh, poetry pieces on video every day. And they have like millions of hits for works about people, you know, traditionally doing like first person testimonies via poetry about their experiences with like OCD or sexual trauma or, you know, identification, orientation, and kids are gravitating towards these poets, uh, you know, and it's sort of poetry is almost like perfect for this age because it's three minutes or less (laughs) traditionally, Mm -hmm. and they can they can pump themselves up and hear a different perspective or share it say like, hey, if you don't think that, you know, uh, that trans people are trans women are real women like watch this poem for three minutes and see if it changes your mind they can use it as a tool to open up the minds of their professors or their parents or other family members or say hey this is what i feel like sometimes and i Mm -hmm. want you to listen to this poet describe it so that we can have a conversation about it poetry has become a currency um in the internet age and uh which i never expected but i think it's the youth that is really driving um, the popularity of poetry right now. And I'm, I'm grateful to them that everyone says that, you know, this generation doesn't read, but they just read in a different way. Yeah, they do. Right. Yeah. So speaking of um, poems that have like inspired you or poets that uh, you you go back to again and again, do you have I, I like to ask poets to bring in a poem? I mean, there's no better. I just think that's like, such a gift to like say hey what do you love show us what you love because there's nothing better than sharing a poem that has changed you with someone else you know yeah and I spoke earlier about sort of taking comfort in in books about grief right um and certainly the poet that I'm going to read from I was an enormous fan of Kevin Young if you do not know him um he is currently the director of the Schomburg Center in uh, New York City which is uh sort of a center of African-American history through the New York Public Library. He's also the editor of The New Yorker, and he's incredible. I mean, he is the most prolific man on earth, Mm -hmm. and his books are all incredible. Um, And he wrote a book called Dear Darkness in the Mm -hmm. Wake of His Father's Passing, which I turned to so much in the wake of my mother's passing because of the different angles in which he showed the way that grief could arise or that memories could come forth. And so the poem that I'm selecting today from Dear Darkness is a poem called Ode to Sweet Potato Pie. And it's in this last section of the book, which is odes to a whole bunch of different foods from his uh, upbringing. And so my choice today is going to be Kevin Young's Ode to Sweet Potato Pie from his book, Dear Darkness. Caramel, coffee cake, Chocolate I don't much love anyway. Tough taffy. Anything with nuts or raisins. Goobers. Even my Aunt Dixie's apple pie recipe or the sweet potato pie my mother makes sing. Even heaven. Even Boston cream pie. Key lime. Baked Alaska. Dense flourless torte covered in raspberries like a Bronx cheer. Sherbert. Spelt right. And sandwiches made of ice cream, even mints or coffee I never drink, even sherry 
and smooth port pulled up from shipwrecks preserved on the bottom of the sea, all of this and more. I would give up to have you here, pumpkin-colored father, cooking for me, your hungry oven humming. Just one more minute. Mm. What, a, what a beautiful poem, and also just that he's such a brilliant poet. <laughs> <laughs> he's incredible, too, in that, like, the way that he begins the list this like litany of desserts and you don't know what they signify yet right he's just drawing you along until i would give up all of these the statement at the end of all of these specific images or you know spe- you know the, this list of desserts right boom yeah you know it's like and oh. all these way it lights up in you you know and and you know that's one of his gifts is playing with uh, darkness and light in his book. So, you know, this is called Dear Darkness, and he's grappling with lots of heavy stuff. And then you move into this section about food, and it kind of reminds you of the joy of living, you know, mm. these things that you love to eat and the community that surrounds eating. And so you get to this place, and you're picturing all of this food, and it's like lighting up all of these pleasure centers. And then just to have him be willing to shut all of that down. Mm. Uh, to have one more minute, which is, you know, an experience I think anyone who has lost someone important to them can certainly. Yeah. And the way that food, uh, you know, especially desserts. Right. You know, just it it is. Those are those are memory. uh, Yeah. Those those activate your memory centers as well. Yeah. You know. And there's food lost, you know, people Mm -hmm. pass too. Yeah. You know, right. you have the recipe that you never got down mm-hmm. and you never get to have it again. Right. Yeah. When I smell um, like really heavy cumin, <laughs> you know, that smell, it's not cumin when it's cooking, but like after you've cooked something. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like my grandmother's kitchen. <laughs> my grandmother actually had a Mexican restaurant, but she and my grandfather both did a lot of like cooking at home. My grandfather would make chicharrones, <laughs> pigskins. Yeah. <laughs> I still love the smell of them, but, you know, you have to, like, put your, you have to, like, shut off part of your brain <laughs> to eat them. Don't think about what it is. Um, it reminds me of this poem by Jane Kenyon. Have you read this poem about, mm. I can't now remember what the title is. I teach this poem all the time, but it's like, I took the last dusty piece of china out of the barrel. It was your gravy boat with one hardened brown drop of gravy still on it. I grieved for you then as I never had before. You know, that's sort of, I'm going to bring you in to this poem with the the image, with the specificity, and then I'm going to lay the statement on you, and I will destroy you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And that's, you know, Kevin Young also did an incredible anthology called The Art of Losing, which oh. is all poems about I don't know that, 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 that anthology. And, you know, uh, yeah, he wrote it because he got married and he um, he realized there's like a bajillion anthologies if you want to do wedding poems, all poems about love that you can buy. And after his father died and he's a poet, people said, oh, you know, for his funeral, he's like, I've got to find some poems. And he looked for an anthology of poems that would be appropriate to read at a funeral and none existed. Mm. And he thought this is a travesty. This is people at their worst moments and we could really be giving them comfort. And it is incredible. And, and what it does is show 
that complete spectrum of grief. You know, it's not just poems eulogizing a beloved person, but struggling with anger and guilt and shame and someone you lost a long time ago and mm-hmm. are still missing them and mm-hmm. the freshness of just losing somebody and losing someone you never mended with. And it's it's old poets and new poets, and I highly recommend that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, grief, so many facets and rises up in so many different ways that it's it's really stunning to see a person handle it so well. So mm-hmm. Kevin Young with Dear Darkness and his book, A Book of Hours, as well as his anthology, The Art of Losing, I would yeah. highly suggest if anyone uh, wants to dive into this territory. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much me on. for coming really in lovely. too. I want to do them all like this. Maybe <laughs> Rebecca can fly in. <laughs> the room. You Austin's know. a great town. You can get a lot of people during book festivals. I know, right? Yeah, we've got to get on that. We've got to get on that. You can find Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz's poem, The First Checkup After My Mother Died, in her new collection, How to Love the Empty Air, out now from Right Bloody Press. This is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>